All right, well, um, we're still in this large prophecy, series of prophecies that all bunch together. And uh, as you've seen, it kind of goes back and forth with encouragement to chastisement, um, blessing, cursing, back and forth. That'll continue to chapter 48. Our last chapter, uh, if you remember, uh, I know a week is a long time ago for a lot of us. Uh, it, It started with hope and encouragement from the Lord. Uh, uh, that Yahweh is the God of Israel, that Israel belongs to him, and that he chose them. But the the chapter ended with accusations against Israel for their unfaithfulness. And then the chapter closed uh, with a reminder of the terms of the covenant, that a term that Israel violated. And that because of that, uh, there would be a curse, the curse of exile. And uh, that particular judgment of Israel for her sin, uh, as we mentioned briefly, uh, it maintained God's covenant integrity and his commitment to justice. The agreement was made, the terms were set, and then Israel violated. And so that is actually a term uh, of the covenant. If they violate the covenant, these things will follow. And, uh, And so it's coming. But then as we search the scriptures and look at the nature of God's discipline and judgment of his own people, it's always restorative. It's never intended to destroy. Uh, That's a different form of judgment in the scriptures, uh, which is punishment. Punishment is for the sake of destruction. And sometimes we use them interchangeably and and probably by habit, uh, but there are two different things, discipline and punishment. And we, we punish criminals. We get them away from us get them out of society, uh, and, and of course, execution is the ultimate form. Yeah, all the police in the room are going, not anymore, we don't. Uh, well, God's justice is actually justice. So, And then discipline always has the reforming of the criminal in mind, if you will, the sinner. And so that is what God intends to do with Israel and Babylon. But while chapter 3 anticipated the severity of God in judgment, chapter 44 looks forward to the mercy of God in his redemption. Uh, This chapter is broken up this way. Verse 1 through 5 has everything to do with Israel's identity. And then chapter 6 through 8 has everything to do with God's identity. Verse 9 through 20 has everything to do with the identity of idols and the folly of those who worship them. And then verse 21 through 28 uh, has everything to do with what God will do on Israel's behalf. It's a pretty simple breakdown of the chapter, and um, so we'll get into it. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. It's a fairly long chapter. If you don't want to stand through it, um, I won't punish or discipline you for that. Okay. All right. Let's see if you can catch some of the sarcasm. God's a little cheeky. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant... And Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. 
another will write with his hand the Lord's and the name and name himself by the name of Israel. And thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock I know not. Those who make an idol, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. 
and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Well, Father, um, chapter 44 is certainly a relief after chapter 43. And I pray, Lord, that some of the principles in the chapter that you would teach us, especially in terms of our identity, your identity, and um, what it means practically. So, Lord, help us, we pray, to understand your word. In Jesus' name, go and be seated. All right. That's a pretty long chapter. All right, well, let's back up. He says, Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. What a merciful way to to continue the prophecy from chapter 43. Uh, As we said, since the last chapter ended with a curse. It's not a fun way to end a conversation, right? Especially if you're the, um, you know, the one receiving the curse. Um, I'm glad that for their sake that that wasn't the end of the prophecy. Um, the chapter here begins with uh, here now, okay? Here now, uh, listen up, pay attention to me, Jacob. And he's basically saying to them, this is who you are to me. This is who you are to me. And so the mention of Israel and to all of her multiple synonyms as God's chosen, uh, his elect, his people, his servant. He says the ones he formed and created for his glory. All of that's been on repeat for multiple chapters. Now it's going to continue. But the message is clear. Uh, you are mine, not here nice. Isn't it? Through all of these chapters, you're mine, not here nice, in blessing or cursing, in discipline or judgment, whether in the land or out of the land, you guys belong to me. You guys belong to me. And and that may not be so good for you as long as you're rebellious, right? But since you belong to me, I'm going to discipline you for rebellion and I'm going to bring you back around, okay? Uh, God made his covenant with their fathers and it's final. The covenant has been made, that's it. And as Paul said, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable, unconditional, and therefore they're eternal. Uh, In verse 2, God refers to Israel as Jeshurun. It means upright ones. Are you kidding me? Where have we heard Jeshurun before? Anybody remember? It's only used four times in all of the Bible. Jeshurun, yeah. We'll come back to that. This this is really fascinating to me, and I think it's uh, theologically, it's extremely important, even for New Testament theology. Because Israel, as we know, uh, they are not upright, are they? But God calls them upright. Literally, he calls them upright, the upright ones, okay? The similarities with this in in the way that God views Israel uh, is is very similar to how he refers to us in the New Covenant. The, The similarities are striking. In most of the New Testament letters, what do the apostles call the audience? Brethren, what's that one? Which one is more um, ridiculous? Saints. The saints literally means holy ones, holy ones, those who are set apart. 
Now, this is both true and it's somewhat absurd, just as it was to call Israel Jeshurun. Okay? Um, practically speaking, we are not exactly holy. Okay? Not exactly. Uh, behaviorally, uh, actively or passively, in our minds or in our actions, we're not spiritually impressive, really. Okay? Not exactly. Now, we should be growing in holiness as God is conforming us to the image of Christ. But mind you, he's conforming us because we're not there yet. So we're in process. That should be a growing thing. Uh, as Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's a process from glory to glory. Okay? But the, the difference between our current state of practical holiness and that of Christ's is infinitely vast, right? But because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through the work of regeneration, we are positionally holy. We have been completely set apart as God's purchased possession, uh, as his own special people, created for his good pleasure. We are, as uh, Martin Luther said, we are sinner saints. You identify with that a little bit? Yeah. But when you sin, the status of your sainthood is unchanged. Your position before God. Practically, you're what we all know you are. Okay? But positionally, you remain the same before God. We are citizens of heaven, but currently, practically, we are sinners here on earth. When we enter finally into the presence of God, we will both be positionally and practically holy. But for now, there just remains this vast difference between the two. Okay? So Israel is called Jeshurun, upright, okay? and that is in her covenant position before God. You are mine. You are mine. Okay? But at the time that this was written, she was, she was down wrong, not upright. Okay? She was messed up. She was disobedient. She was rebellious. And, and it's interesting that God hasn't used this rather uh, poetic name for Israel for hundreds of years, and it's only used four times total, three other times than now, and the last time it was spoken of, it was in Deuteronomy 33, 26. That was a long time ago for this to just come back again. It was first used prophetically of Israel's future breach of the covenant. And now what are we talking about? The discussion in Deuteronomy, it says Jeshurun grew fat, speaking of Israel, and that she is naughty, she's disobedient. And then the curse that comes upon her for the breach of the covenant is exile. So that was prophetic in Deuteronomy, but now we arrived at the threshold of the fulfillment of that prophecy, and God again refers to Israel as Jeshurun. It's so embarrassing when that happens. <laughs> Very interesting, huh? That's why he brings it up. He's saying, listen, Israel, back in Deuteronomy, in the Song of Moses, this day was predicted. And just as he called you Jeshurun back then, I'm calling you Jeshurun in fulfillment of it. It's crazy. But in the text itself, disobedience does not annul what is unconditional. They still belong to God. They're still his servant, okay? Positionally though they're practically ungodly. He says, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty 
and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. Now, the, the talk of the spirit being poured out on their descendants, I think our mind wants to go to Acts chapter 2. We can't go there because the context dictates uh, where this is placed, okay? It probably refers to the leaders especially that returned from Babylon after the captivity. Men like Zerubbabel and Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, and Malachi, okay? Um, you remember referring to the challenges faced by the people of Israel in regard to the building of the temple, Zechariah prophesied. He said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Do we all know this passage? We rarely quote it in context, but he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is in regard to the building of the temple. That's what it is. So the spirit of the Lord comes upon the leaders of Israel when they return to the land. Nehemiah and Zerubbabel for governance, okay? Ezra for spiritual reform, and the prophets for encouraging the people, just as we see in the prophecy here. The word of the Lord was to the governor, Zerubbabel, that this task that I've set before you, my spirit will ensure that this takes place. So we see the spirit of God working in those who have come back from exile in Babylon. That will be the fulfillment of the prophecy. At that time, one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Now, if I was into tattoos, and I'm not, uh, I would probably tattoo this on me. Not the whole verse, but the Hebrew that says, I am the Lord's or the Lord's. Literally, the first one is to the Lord, and the second one is for the Lord. To the Lord and for the Lord. Okay. Yeah, so Isaiah prophesies about Israel's future patriotism and their loyalty to God. There's going to be this excitement in returning to the land because of who the people belong to uh, as far as their God is concerned and then the nation that they belong to. So it's going to be a revival in religion and it'll be a revival in patriotism. All of it will be contagious. There'll be all this energy when they come back, be unashamed of their heritage and their identity, all of which, of course, would be necessary for their survival when they come back from exile. Because when they come back, they come back to a nation that is in shambles. Amen? The temple is destroyed. The city walls are down. Uh, jackals are inhabiting so much of the, the, uh, the real estate, if you will. And so you come back from exile, and all you have is rebuilding to do. How many of you guys have done masonry work? Okay. So this isn't like, oh, well... The buildings were all knocked down. Let's burn it all. And then it was built in its place. No, no, no. It was all stone. So you have to first remove it or at least level it and then build. That's heavy duty stuff. So this is a lot, a lot of work. So they had to come back with this, this renewed energy, this excitement. So the people will identify as his, as Yahweh's, and they'll be proud of their heritage in Israel. I think we ought to be the same unashamed and excited. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, or its Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. So in the first section, God gave them their identity, your mine, okay? 
And now he clarifies his identity. Who is God? Uh, He is the Lord, that is Yahweh. That's the everlasting covenant God. You remember that when God finally identified himself with great clarity, uh, it was the name Yahweh, and then it was associated with a covenant. So we call, we, we, we say that Yahweh is the covenant name of God. He's here the king of Israel, the redeemer of Israel, the Lord of hosts. Okay, the host uh, essentially is angelic armies. He's the commander of it. He's the first and the last and the only God. That's who I am, he says. And then he says, and who can proclaim as I do? Then let them declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Now, this is where God becomes a little sarcastic, okay? He's calling out to the gods of the pagans, asking them to show themselves and to prove their deity by communicating the future and by sovereignly bringing it to pass. But there's no answer, there's no response, just as God expected, okay? So again, by nature, as we've talked about in 42 till now, chapter 42, by nature, deity possesses all knowledge, all knowledge, knowing all things simultaneously and can, by their own sovereign power, orchestrate all events as it chooses. That's what, that's what deity can do because of its very nature. But none of these things are true of anyone but Yahweh. And because of this reality, God addresses Israel this way. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. I love the sarcasm in this. There's at least one thing that an all-knowing God does not know. He cannot know that which does not exist. And that's another God. He says, I, I, I know everything, and I don't know what the pagan says he knows about. There's just no other gods out here. There's nothing but me. So because God is the only God that exists, Israel has no reason to fear. He's the only rock, and they're covered by his eternal strength. So that's who God is. Because of who he is, Israel should not worry. So now he turns to the folly of idolatry, both the idolater and the idol itself. He says, those who make an idol, all of them are useless and their precious things shall not profit. So idolater and idol, they are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? It's like saying, how could you be so stupid? The pagan's a witness against himself that they're useless. Their idols have no profit. They don't see, they don't hear, they do absolutely nothing. They don't save, they don't deliver, they don't bless, they don't curse. They just sit there wherever they place them. Crazy. The idol, as Paul said, it's just nothing. Surely all his companions would be ashamed. That is, if they were to come to their senses, they would just go, what was I thinking? Did I, did I really just bow down to a piece of wood? They would be ashamed. And the workmen... They are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers and works 
it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So the idea is if, if this is the God who redeems him, saves him, sustains him, where's the return for his efforts? Nothing, because the, the, the idol does not provide for him. The craftsman, that is the woodworker, stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass. He goes to all this effort. He makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. You realize the first half that he burnt in the fire and made bread with was more beneficial to him than the second half that he bowed down and worshiped. The the idol that he made should just be thrown into the fire and then cook his food with it. He says, they do not know nor understand for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So you notice that God says that they do not know or understand, for he, that is God, shut their eyes so they cannot see. See, judgment from God falls upon the idolater. If, when someone insists uh, on you know, moral or spiritual foolishness, God gives them over to it. And, and Paul says that's the wrath of God. It's judgment. He lets them have what they want. He allows them to be corrupted by their own desires. Idolatry is not some innocent product of culture. It's It's evil. Uh, it's insulting to God. It, it's, it's not some naive form of religion. It, it's moral foolishness. It's not, it's not childish foolishness. This is moral foolishness. And so when someone engages in it by choice, God says, have it your way. And when he hands them over to it, they're blinded even, even further. And he, Paul talks about all of this in Romans 1. Let me read this to you. Listen carefully. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, I'm not not against heaven, from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So they're willfully suppressing truth that is universally objective. He says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it, to them. So that's why idolatry is wrong. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that's us, even God's eternal power 
and deity so that they are without excuse. So there's no room for atheism because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Remember in our text, they made it in the beauty of a man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. What does the idolater not understand? That there is a lie in his right hand, speaking of the, the idol in his hand. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So in idolatry, the truth of God that has been revealed to them has been exchanged for a lie and they worship it. It's crazy. So God shifts gears here. He says, remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Do you think he's trying to make a point to Israel? Just very repetitive. He says, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Doesn't that sound crazy? Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I've redeemed you, but the implication is there. They haven't yet returned. But from God's perspective, it's all done. He says, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. And he has to, right? Because there's no other gods. Who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I'll dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasures, my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, earlier, a mention of an individual who would come up on the scene to let Israel free from Babylon. Remember, God was taunting the gods of the pagans. And he basically says, I'm going to call someone out and I'm going to have him do something for the sake of my people. If you're a God, tell me who he is and what he will do. But remember, he didn't give the name. So it's like he, he gives them time. He gives them a few chapters to at least take their best guess, but that which does not exist can't even guess, right? So here, in chapter 44, he finally brings out the name. And this is the name of a Persian king who has not even been born yet. We are still generations away from Cyrus, like 150 years. Is that cold water? It might do. Thanks. It's okay. Thank you. Thank you, Isaac. 
So here, God calls Cyrus my shepherd. <clears throat> now, remember, Cyrus is a pagan. He's a pagan. He never comes to faith. We talked about this. He was a, a religious pluralist and a, a syncretist. He, I, he <clears throat> recognized all deities, and he did his best to appease all of them. And what he did not want to do was offend any of them because that might bring their judgment upon him. So when he became king of Babylon, he signed an edict that all people in captivity could go home and they could go back to their land, erect their temples and worship their gods. Crazy, huh? But God called him by name and raised him up and used him as the instrument to do his bidding for the sake of his people. God chooses whoever he pleases and he accomplishes through them whatever he wants. Amen? That's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. Okay. So Cyrus will come on the scene and do all of those, all of those things. But in regard to all of this, you remember in verse 1, God, God told Israel, listen up. And now he tells them to remember. Listen up and now remember. And, and much of what they were to listen to and what they were to remember is the same. Some of it's new. <clears throat> in the first section... God told them who they were. In the second, he said who he was. And now they were to keep in these things in mind, plus many more things. God reminds them, informs them, you're my servant. I formed you. Here he says, you will not be forgotten by me. That's, I'm not going to force you into exile and just, you rebelled, you're done. Whatever happens to you, happens to you. No, he says, I, you will not be forgotten. I have blotted out your sins. I've redeemed you, glorified myself in you, stretched out the heavens, so more about himself, made the earth all by myself, and then I frustrate babblers, diviners, wise men. I alone tell you things to come through my prophets. I alone bring my promises to pass. And then this last one among them is my promise to have Cyrus command that Jerusalem and the temple be built. That's calling it out, isn't it? All in advance. It's interesting. When Isaiah gave this prophecy, uh, Jerusalem and the temple were both standing. Nothing was wrong. I mean, there was a lot morally wrong with Israel at the time, but by all appearances of the city, the temple, the land, everything was intact. Things were doing well. And so for the people to hear this, the implication, of course, is that it'll be destroyed. And what a sobering thought, because there's only one thing that could bring Jerusalem and the temple to ruins. That's war, and that's being completely conquered. So that's all in their minds. But God says, though it's coming, I will bring you back, and things will be renewed. Let's go back to some of the instruction I think is important to talk about. This hearing and remembering, hearing and remembering. You know, Deuteronomy 6 is uh, what is called the, the Shema. And Shema in Hebrew means to listen up, to pay attention. So it begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So it's the Jewish statement of faith. And then it goes from statement of faith and then to um, what Israel is responsible for, to love their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to pass on the, the knowledge of God to their children. You know the text. So here, listen up. Here we have something similar. So it, it's necessary. God is commanding them. I believe he commands us to hear the truth of who God says we are 
And then we need to understand by command who he is and then what he has done for us. Just, just as Israel needed to do this, we need to do it as well. Now, of course, we're different than Israel. Uh, they're an ethnic group. Uh, we are a mixed multitude of whatever. We're called the church, very different in scripture. And then our covenant is also different. So our identity is different. And then God's work on our behalf and his promises to us are different, but they're significant. The, the New Testament is filled with all kinds of truths about us, how God sees us, and then truths about him, his identity, his deity, his sovereignty, all of those things. So, for example, in Ephesians 1, Paul dedicates a long section in regard to uh, what the believer is to God. In Ephesians 1, where God's chosen, the individual believer is God's chosen one, verse 4. Now, I would insist that Israel is called God's chosen. And when God calls me his chosen, it's really no different. He's chosen. Amen? It says, we're God's predestined child, verse 5. We're God's accepted one in the beloved, verse 6. We're the predestined ones for his inheritance, verse 11. We're the sealed ones by the Holy Spirit, verse 13. We are his purchased possession, verse 14. All in Ephesians 1. And then for the believer, God has, Paul says, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, verse 3. He has chosen us, verse 4. Redeemed us, verse 7. Forgiven us, verse 7. Revealed his will to us, verse 9 predestined us, verse 11, and sealed us, verse 13. And then as you go through the chapter, they begin to be more spread out. But in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that the believer is the workmanship of God. And in verse 19, he says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. He's talking to, to Gentiles. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's a great way to sum all of that up. If all of the stuff in Ephesians 1 is true, then we could say, therefore, we are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're his family. We're his family. So those are just a few facts of redemption in one section of the Bible. They're true of the believer. All of those things should be known. So listen up, Paul might say, and Remember, remember, and remembering is important, especially when you're in a place you shouldn't be, young people, or participating in something you should not be participating in. You should remember who you are, what God has done for you, or when you're being persecuted for the faith. We have eight uh, missionaries in Libya now that are in prison, and the Libyan government is threatening to execute them. That's the decision they've made. Uh, One of the directors for the group says it's probably not going to happen, but it's a tactic of of intimidation. This is something I want to, that is important to say. These guys have not forgotten who they are, who they belong to. So this was the insanity of all this. Every one of these missionaries, they recorded them telling how they came to faith in Jesus, and they broadcasted it on government websites and TV in Libya. When the director emailed that to me, I said, so what you're saying is 
the Libyan government will be complicit in leading Muslims to Christ. So God used those men who knew and remembered. And like Israel, when they come back from exile, they belong to the Lord and they're excited to be his. And they did it out to all of their own people. You know, they've, many of those men have been laboring for decades in Libya. And God used the government to do in two minutes what they didn't do in 30 or 40 years. They never went out and street preached because of how dangerous it was. But in a couple minutes, each of them, a couple minutes, got to share the faith, got to preach the gospel to their countrymen. Isn't that amazing? I just love it. Who will they execute when they find out they're to blame? (laughs) When you're being persecuted, you need to remember who you are. Or when you're going through a difficult time, when you're on your deathbed, when others are trying to influence you, when you're at work, when you're with your friends, you are something in reality to God. You're the redeemed. You're his chosen. And you've chosen to, you've been chosen to be holy. That's the truth. And that should be taken with you everywhere you go. Who God is, who we are, what he's done for us, what he's promised to us. These are the most essential realities. And what culture and society say and what they offer and promise is death, is death. Paul talks about this in another way. In Romans 12, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What's most important to us? Our bodies. I mean, we feed them, we dress them, we decorate them. And God says, take it and present it to God as a living sacrifice. That is something offered to him. It's holy, acceptable to God. And he says, this is just your reasonable service or your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Conformity to this world by way of friendship with it. John says that's the hatred of God. It's, it's the very opposite of what is acceptable to him. John talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. All those things in cahoots. You guys know what cahoots means, right? Young people, it means to be in league. They're on the same team. Something in us is on the same team with the devil and the world. Of course, the devil is the god of this world and this age. They're all working against the soul for its destruction. And what we see, especially right now in our culture with social media, is that the world is trying to assign for every person a secular, of this worldliness identity, and with it a behavior and ideals that align with it. We're all being influenced. We must know our God and what we are to him. Otherwise, we will be easy prey for that which destroys us. Being naive and the ignorant are not Christian virtues. If you want a fun exercise, look up how many times Peter and Paul use the word knowledge in their epistles over and over and over again. We are to know God, know ourselves, and the facts of redemption. And the more you do, I think the more excited you will be to say, I am Jehovah's. Amen. Go ahead and stand up and let's pray. Well, Father, it's a lot of facts. It's a lot of truth. But it seems that for every truth and fact that, is, that comes to us from the Spirit, the world has five falsehoods, distractions, deceptions. Lord, I, I just 
pray that we would listen up. As you said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Or we want to hear your voice. We want to know, Lord, who we are to you, what you've done with us and for us. Lord, who you are in all of your majesty, your sovereignty and your goodness, Lord. And help us, Lord, to be like Israel when they return from exile. Just so proud to have you as their God, to be invigorated by their God. Lord, help us to stand because the days are dark. Help us to walk in the light, Lord, as you're in the light. Help us to be wise and help us to fend off anything that the enemy puts forth. Help us, Lord, we pray. And Lord, I would lift up these missionaries in Libya. It's, it's tragic, but it's really exciting. And we pray that, Lord, their testimonies would just continue to be broadcast as uh, already as their website shows millions of Libyans have viewed it and listened. Lord, let the gospel go out in Libya. And Lord, then we pray that you'd return these men to their wives and their children. And Lord, we also pray for uh, Michael's family. Lord, I just pray that you'd comfort Barbara, his bride. Be with the rest of the family. Be with all those people that were so close to them, Lord. And Lord, I, <clears throat> I just thank you for the blessing that Michael was. And his example, Lord, he finished well. And I love it. And uh, so thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, love you guys. Have a good night.